looks like we have avoided the technological snafus that uh, infected our time yesterday, but we're back at it seamlessly, technologically coming to you now. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 8 as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation this morning, drinking from the, oh yeah, it's every bit as obnoxious as it looks on the live stream, my Stormtrooper coffee mug, and it's just a thing of beauty. So let me pray for us, and then we'll be diving into to Revelation 8. Lord Jesus, we come before you, and we ask now that you would help us to understand some of these hard things. Lord, we know that you've given your word for the building up of your church and for our encouragement and hope. And Lord, now please speak to us through that word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are up to the seventh seal. So remember, the seals are the decrees of God over human history. Um, everything that's happening from the coming of Christ to the first time to the coming of Christ, the second time. And John is going to tell us that, that story of redemption several times, first through the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. They're all telling the same story over and over, but with a different point of emphases. This particular set of seals, this first set of seals, is meant to communicate to us what happens um, on the last day of judgment, what this means for believers, what this means for unbelievers. And remember yesterday we talked about how believers don't have to fear this judgment because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our down payment, our deposit. It's the thing that God has put into us himself as a guarantee that he is going to come back one day, that our salvation is secure, that we've been clothed in the robes of Christ and his righteousness. Well, now we're going to get to the seventh seal. We're just going to look at five verses this morning uh, because these five verses say a lot in, in, a, in, a, in a very short segment here. So let's read these five verses and let's unpack it together. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, one of the things that should jump out immediately to you as you as we read the seventh seal is we're asking, what is the seventh seal? Okay, all it all it says is there was silence. Okay, and we're like, okay, we're waiting. Jesus, tell us what. What is the content of the seal? What's happening? And I think what we what we need to see here, some have even said, well, there is no content to the seventh seal. It's hidden. It's secret. No, I don't think that's what it means. I believe that the silence is the content of the seventh seal. In other words, the seventh seal is opened and there is silence in heaven. That is what's being revealed. Now, remember we, how we said you really, really have to know your Old Testament to make sense of Revelation. Revelation, as a reminder, quotes the Old Testament 
and alludes to the Old Testament more than any other single book in the New Testament. And we know from the Old Testament that this idea of silence, okay, particularly silence that emanates from the throne room and presence of God has a particular meaning. So a couple of passages, um, we're going to do Bible drill this morning, and this is where you find out if you really know your Bible, we're going to take you to all the obscure um, Old Testament prophets. Okay, so first of all, Habakkuk 2.20. Habakkuk 2.20, and, and you can jot it down for reference for later if you can't get there quickly enough. But here's what Habakkuk 2.20 says. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Um, let's go to Zechariah 2.13. And I cheated because I was able to look them up ahead of time and mark my spot. Zechariah 2.13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. A couple of things these, these verses um, different concepts these communicate to us. First of all, silence is what happens at the moment of God's judgment. Okay, it's all silence is always associated with this idea of judgment, um, God's righteousness displayed against the world, for the world, in light of the world. That that silence is the is is marks that moment of, of judgment. It's as if, and, I, and again, this is, this is what's operative here, no one can speak in God's presence. No one can utter a defense in God's presence. In fact, there's kind of a, what G.K. Bill calls a primeval silence, right? The silence that was there at the moment of creation where there was, there was nothing, and God spoke everything into existence by his word. Well, the same idea is operative here, that the at the final judgment, all are gathered around the throne, right? And there is silence as the people of God await his judgment, his, his verdict, um, as, the, as those who are enemies of God are silent and await his verdict. And this idea of the half hour, you know, Daniel talks about, how he was silent for an hour, okay, before the God, just contemplating the mysteries of God and what God was teaching him and all those sorts of things. I think the half hour here is meant to, I don't think it's its literal, like 30 minutes, go, right? Okay, and God's going to be silent. You know, it, it, it's to denote this idea of expectation. It, it's a stunned silence, right? It refers to the suddenness and, um, and, the suddenness of the appearing of the crisis, of an appointed time of judgment, that it appears suddenly, um, you know, God appears and no one can say a word. Everyone is just immobilized, waiting for his decree, waiting for his judgment. And so I think that's what the seventh seal is meant to communicate. Now, specifically, what happens as a part of this silence is that God is answering the prayers of his saints. So flip back to Revelation 6 for a second at the beginning of these seals, uh, verses 9 and 10. And this is uh, as part of the, I think this is part of the fifth seal, right? So verse 9, chapter 6, When he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign God, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So here in the fifth seal, God's saints are crying out to him. They are praying to him. Um, the blood of the martyrs is calling out, God, how long till you vindicate us? And so in, in a sense, we can think about ourselves in that. We look at injustice in the world. We look at suffering. We look at um, tribulation. We look at the way um, God's people have been persecuted. We look at um, the way the world is broken. And we're calling out how long we're, we're praying. Well, here in verse 3, 4, and 5, we see... God's answer to those prayers, okay? Um, and let's read it again because I think it's very pertinent. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Let's stop there for a second. Whose prayers? The saints, okay? But we have to ask, when were these prayers prayed? And I think from the context, it's clear that these are the prayers prayed by God's people for the entire history of redemption and of his church, all the way from Abraham to present day and those who would follow after us. That it says, in a sense, that God metaphorically, is collecting all of those prayers, all those prayers prayed over hundreds and thousands of years. And what I think John is communicating here for us is that these prayers are never wasted. The prayers of God's people never go unanswered. Now, they may go unanswered in the way that we would want them to be answered in our lifetime, but they're never wasted. They're, they're stored up. Uh, they're remembered by God. Now listen to this. Look in verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In other words, God's been storing up the prayers of his saints for uh, entire human history. Our prayers for redemption, our prayers for grace, our prayers for justice. And then at the final judgment, it's like he's taking this bowl of prayers, metaphorically, and dumping it out, turning it over, pouring it out on the face of the earth, and they are accomplishing his will, which is a pretty amazing thing. Because a lot of times we get discouraged in our praying. We grow lax in our praying. We, um, we become um, tired or passive in our praying because we don't see the results we would love to see right here, right now. And I think what John is communicating is that for the saint, for the for the people of God, um, that's just a myth, right? That, that these prayers are being heard and stored up right now. In fact, God is answering prayers today that were prayed hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. Um, there were ways that Paul prayed for the church or Peter prayed for the church or Jesus prayed for the church right, in the upper room, that are now being answered in our lives and in the future. And so, so I just think that's an incredible point of encouragement that at the point of silence, when God renders his judgment, we can trust him that not only are our souls secure, but that he is in fact actively answering 
our prayers, all the prayers ever prayed um, in that specific day. Now, let me mention one other thing before we leave uh, these verses. Um, a lot of times, um, particularly in an affluent um, culture that um, doesn't have a lot of categories, okay, for um, what, what we would kind of call a wrathful God or a God full of judgment, um, there can be a sense in which this language is disjoining. It's, 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 it's hard to hear this idea of um, a God who is going to, to judge the wicked, a God who is going to, to save the righteous in his name. But interestingly, while we have a hard time grappling with that part of God, we don't have a hard time grappling with the, with the, with the idea that there should be justice in this life, right? Uh, we hear a lot about social justice. We hear about uh, inequity. Um, we hear a lot about um, making things right. But we need to understand that all of those ideas of justice, with, apart from God, okay, are just mere human constructs. They're just sentimental humanism. They don't mean anything. Um, they are just a human construction. Well, obviously, we know that's not right. Um, we know that the reason we can pray for justice, work for justice and peace, is that God is a justice warrior. He makes peace with us through the cross. He will fix and render judgment over every wicked thing that's ever happened, right? That's a certainty. And so I just want us to, to remember, when we give up the idea of a justice or wrathful God, we're giving up the very basis by which we can pray for peace and justice in this world to expect God to, to, to make things right that are wrong, whether it's the person who's abused or murdered or mistreated or what have you. And, and ultimately, you know, I think what we see in our culture is we have a culture that, has, that does have a firm category for justice, okay, personal justice, okay, or justice for groups but doesn't have any categories for forgiveness, right? No categories for atonement. No categories for um, laying aside my grievances and, and forgiving someone. And obviously, it's not going to be possible to have those categories apart from Christ, apart from the gospel. Because remember, Jesus was the just and God was the just and the justifier based upon the death of Christ. So God's bringing justice into the world through the death of Christ, but God is also rectifying um, justice in that he's, pouring, he's poured his wrath out on his son. He's punished that sin, and because of that, we no longer have to be punished in Christ. And so the, the moral of this story is run to Jesus, flee to Jesus, um, um, because he is the one that has made peace for us with God through the cross and because of that, then we can rightly pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can rightly pray for justice and peace to come into this world. But we can only do that, we can't do that, if we, if we let go of this idea that God is a God full of justice and righteousness. Um, so I think that's where Revel the seventh seal in the beginning of Revelation 8 takes us. Tomorrow, same time, same station, we're going to look at the next set of seven. This time it's the seven trumpets. And this time, as John narrates the history of redemption for us, he's going to emphasize a different aspect, okay, of the way God works 
um, in the lives of his people. And we're going to see that beginning tomorrow. Let me pray. Lord, um, there's just so much here in your word. Lord, I'm just personally encouraged that you always hear the prayers of your saints, that you store them up. They aren't wasted. Um, you are answering them, things that were prayed millennia ago. And because of that, we can trust you to keep praying. We can also trust you that when you come back, you're going to make everything right, that you're going to bring justice, that you are going to punish the wrongdoer. All evil deeds will be exposed. And that as believers, we don't have to fear that, even though we are part of those evil deeds and those evil people, our sins have been paid for by Christ. We want to trust in him. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. Have a great day.